see, to begin the recording, should I nod to you? Okay, great. Okay. We can also, uh, maybe could end it right at the, uh, when I do the dedication of merit. That work for you? Okay. The bell did not seem to have that much effect. <laughs> what? I heard it, yeah, yeah. But we're pretty good here. I. I had a very interesting time. Uh, I taught in uh, Moscow when it was still the Soviet Union, right at, near the end of the Soviet Union. And they just had a totally different relationship to being on time yes. <laughs> than uh, we have. People will be back in a minute or two, but it's pretty good. But there was like, okay, you say 15 minutes, it could be 45. Right. And just had to. This morning I want to continue the inquiry that uh, was initiated last time looking into how we transform what we might call our psychological conditioning, our psychological material, and, and where that fits within the larger map of awakening. And this is part of a, a longer series that uh, kind of came organically uh, out of some explorations of the nature of how we develop, which came initially out of uh, looking at a poem by Mary Oliver about a year ago, not not long after she died, I think, which was January of last year. And what emerged out of that inquiry was exploring how our ordinary conditioning our ordinary habitual mind, body, heart, and so forth, how they get transformed in the process that we sometimes call awakening and what that looks like. And we've, what I initially did was to identify 10 different parameters of the ordinary habitual conditioned mind. And we've looked at already at five of them. I identified 10, which is, again, a, a common number for lists of how things get transformed or what you're supposed to do if you're good. <laughs> and we've looked already at how the ordinary uh, sense of thinking, emotions, uh, nature of the body, nature of the self, and just before last week, uh, how we experience time in the ordinary habitual way. And last time I took on a broad area, which is that how our ordinary psychological conditioning shifts and sort of by implication what the relationship is between working with our, our stuff, our more psychological material, uh, what the relationship between that work is and what we might call traditional spiritual practice, meditation, and so forth. It's a very, very live area, as, as probably most of you know, in the contemporary world. Uh, that how we make use of a lot of what has uh, developed, especially in the last hundred years, especially uh, in the West, in regard to understanding... Uh, the nature of what's sometimes called the unconscious or the shadow or various modes of psychotherapy, 
uh, that help us to transform where we get stuck or where we have developmental wounds or uh, difficulties, how that integrates with mindfulness, with Buddhist practice, is a very, very uh, alive and ongoing uh, exploration. Very, very, very interesting. Um, We could add to that how we understand trauma and also, you know, the theme that is the seventh on my list is how we work with, with social conditioning. And of course, how we work with psychological conditioning is very related to uh, social conditioning around whatever, gender, race, age, sexual orientation, uh, all sorts of things, right? And um, to me, together, all of these types of transformative work point towards, I believe, a deepened and different sense of even what it means to awaken in our times. That it may not simply be a matter of following a traditional path, that we may have a different sense, even what a path of awakening looks like, that integrates more tools of a broadly psychological nature as well as of a broadly social nature that uh, points to uh, ways that we need to practice if we want to awaken. One of the ways that I've thought about this, I've explored here, is on understanding the traditional teaching that the core problem is ignorance. That is the view that we get from the teachings of the Buddha, that the basic issue in human life is ignorance about our, we could say, about our deeper nature and roots in, one way to say it is roots in love, wisdom, compassion, and so forth. And that we collectively, as human beings, don't quite get that that we're caught in more self-centered forms of conditioning and have trouble accessing that depth of love and wisdom and a sense of interconnection. And a lot of our practice is to engender that. And so the traditional model is not that the problem of human life is that some people are evil and some people are good and we just got to eliminate the evil people, uh, which is a, a very common model you know, across cultures, especially in the West. But the sense is that, that uh, even people who do very unskillful things that some would call evil actually in their depths have the same goodness. And that's quite explicit in some of the uh, teachings from the Buddha and otherwise. It's, you know, one of the ways it's expressed is that there is what's called a brightly shining quality of mind and heart, a brightly shining citta in the original language that is there for all beings. And that's connected with uh, the energy of metta or loving kindness. And that's in the, that's in the teachings, right? And so uh, this notion of ignorance is very fundamental, but I I have found that uh, I've needed to augment the traditional model of ignorance in a few ways. The traditional model of ignorance is that we actually, the main way that it's taught by the Buddha is that we don't see into impermanence. We don't see into the nature of dukkha or why there's suffering, why there's reactivity, and we don't see accurately our own being. We, we confu- we're confused about and think that we have a permanent and independent self when there's actually interconnection. That's the traditional area of insight that cuts through ignorance. And maybe a fourth area we could say is that we don't have insight into uh, nibbana or nirvana, you know, which is generally 
not given positive meaning, but it's more the full absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. It could be called, we don't have insight into the sacred. You know, so again, it could be expressed in different ways. And I, I believe that contemporary disciplines, particularly related to psychological inquiry and related to social conditioning, point to two broad areas that are also general areas of ignorance, that we are have a certain level of psychological ignorance. We don't know ourselves in some ways. Uh, again, often related to our wounds, our developmental challenges, and so forth, and that we also don't see clearly because of our social conditioning about, especially we would say race, gender, age, those are some of the prominent ones, you know. Um, and that this could be discussed, but I, you know, I'm working with a model that in some ways we need to work through all three dimensions of ignorance to awaken. And to me, this points to a somewhat different model of awakening and model of what spiritual practice means than we find traditionally that we have to add. And, and again, we could see and some of the reasons that people have thought in this way is that we can see very, what, uh, experienced teachers, especially, or could be advanced practitioners, who may have had deep insights of a traditional nature who, to use the colloquial term, mess up, seem to have uh, shadow material, unconscious material, unresolved issues. The way it usually surfaces is in terms of issues of uh, sexuality, abuse, abuse of power, uh, financial questions, other things, you know, that, that uh, again, there, there's no shortage of these stories, which we know. And they can, one can wonder, how do these things happen? Well, one way to understand it is that people can have very deep spiritual insights of a traditional nature and not have, as it were, resolved other issues, right? Uh, and that would point to a need for a fuller sense of training, a fuller sense of practice, and a sense that meditation in itself may not do it. And I, I think we at Spirit Rock, I think, have not, uh, are still in the process of coming to grips with what this means, right? Because I think it has a lot of, lot of implications in all sorts of ways. Uh, and so that's uh, that's part of the horizon. And I take that as a kind of hypothesis. I'm open to people questioning it or, right, uh, and so forth. Uh, another way that this is talked about, there's a, some of you know the work of Ken Wilbur, who's a, a, really a, a kind of a philosopher of what sometimes is called an integral perspective, which also looks at a number of levels of development. And he's come out with a very simple model of four kinds of development, which, which I find helpful. Four kinds of development of which the traditional model is one of four. His model is that there is waking up, which one can understand more traditionally. But there's also, he said, growing up. <laughs> one can wake up without having grown up. <laughs> and your friends will know. <laughs> yeah. And so there's, there's waking up, but there's also growing up, which means going through certain developmental processes. I mentioned last time that I sometimes encounter in my experience as a teacher, people who I believe need to go through certain developmental tasks and they don't want to because they just want to be spiritual, <laughs> right? And, I, and they don't like me making suggestions, typically. Some of them, or at least they don't seem to. Yeah, maybe, could I take uh, maybe a little later unless it's a question of clarification? Yeah, it's a question. Is that the same concept as spiritual life in 
It could be. Is that the same concept as spiritual bypassing? Yeah, one can bypass for multiple reasons, but one reason would be that uh, one uh, doesn't deal with psychological issues or developmental issues. Yeah, yeah, people... I think John Wellwood, who was local, who just died, I think, about a year ago, he coined the phrase spiritual bypassing to point to uh, a way that people embrace spiritual self-images and actually need to do developmental work or other kinds of psychological work. Yeah. Um, And so uh, Ken Wilber points to waking up, growing up, Another one is cleaning up. <laughs> so, there, there, he just, so he would distinguish developmental tasks from where you have shadow material, unconscious material, where there could be wounds that one has to deal with, maybe trauma and so forth. That would fall under the rubric of cleaning up. So there's waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and his last is showing up. <laughs> which is, is, is more about finding your own way to contribute to the world and have a way that you can bring your own gifts and capabilities into, into life. So it's, that's, that's nice. I think that, that points to four areas. And the, uh, the larger point I'm making is that three of those aren't really that well developed in the... Um, in the traditional models that we get from the teachings of the Buddha uh, so clearly. And the last point I want to make in relation to that is that I think that we're at a a point in uh, human evolution and really in the evolution, the larger evolution of the planet, where there's an imperative for both uh, personal development and transformation and collective transformation. And so I think that really taking on one's own development is almost like a gift to the world and then making that connected with the collective transformation that we need to go through. It's something I've been reflecting on a lot. I wanted to read something. This is, uh, this is from a book that, from someone who's local named Terry Patton called A New Republic of the Heart, which is really about this interplay of uh, individual and collective transformation and the need for both. And I also write about that in, in, in a lot of my work. This is a, this is a quote from uh, Andrew Harvey, some of you know, who, who wrote a book on what he calls spiritual activism. A spirituality that is only private and self-absorbed, one devoid of an authentic political and social consciousness, does little to halt the suicidal juggernaut of history. On the other hand, an activism that is not purified by profound profound spiritual and psychological self-awareness and rooted in divine truth, wisdom, and compassion will only perpetuate the problem it is trying to solve, however righteous its intentions. When, however, the deepest and most grounded spiritual vision is married to a practical and pragmatic drive to transform all existing political, economic, and social institutions, a holy force, the power of wisdom and love in action, is born. So I I think that's really pointing to the importance of this connection of deepening all of these forms of transformation at these times. I believe that, that that's, it's really uh, crucial to, to do that. And related to that, I think there, there's, a, there's a broader, really to all this, I think is a broader sense of a whole spectrum of spiritual practices of which meditation is one, or let's say sitting meditation with eyes closed is one, but a lot of other forms of practice are emerging. We explore those from time to time here. We explore what we might call interpersonal practices, relational practices, such as wise speech, cultivating empathy, compassion, heart practices, uh, ways of developing in community, and so forth, that there are a whole range of uh, new practices which are emerging. (laughs) 
So that being said, that's sort of the larger picture. Let's look some at uh, what I'm calling psychological conditioning. What, what are we talking about? How do we do it? How do we access? Uh, how do we access that which is unworked in, uh, unworked out in ourselves? How do we do that? And how might we connect this to our practice? And how might we use a variety of tools? So. One of the ways that this is explored, uh, particularly in the West, is through uh, the understanding that a large part of how we act and even what we think and what we experience is determined by what we might call unconscious material. We might call it, sometimes we call it shadow material, right? And this is very much... uh, kind of an affront to the modern personality, right? I am aware, autonomous, and in control. I also happen to be rational, <laughs> right? Uh, very common sense of things. And in a way, when the, you know, uh, the work of Freud and others came along, you know, whatever, a little over 100 years ago, 100 and... 20, 130 years ago, uh, it was a shock to sort of the self-understanding of what it meant to be a mature human being. And, uh, but it's actually all, there's always been an understanding in many, many cultures that uh, there are a lot of influences on our behavior and on our minds and our being that we don't see or that we don't notice. You know, in some cultures it's been that the the gods and the goddesses or the spirits are working through us, right? In ways that we hardly can can tell. You know, in some of the some of the old Greek myths, for example, there was a sense that uh the gods and goddesses were on a different level of reality and we were kind of like puppets who are the playthings of these uh, deeper forces, right? And in other cultures, again, it's it's uh, the spirits. And, you know, in, in many cultures, there was a sense that one had to be in contact with these other forces to really come to self-knowledge. You know, this would be the basis for uh, shamanism and going to the underworld. You also find that in a lot of mythical uh, cultures where you know where one actually has to travel to the underworld to deal with certain things right and so you know where I was also thinking in even in uh, in the uh, Christian understanding of someone like some of you know Saint John of the Cross has the sense of the dark night of the soul where these intense energies make it hard really to pursue one's spiritual practice one has to to deal with them, something I've been interested in because I've been starting to teach on the dark night of the soul. You know, I have another day long coming up, I think, in June on that, right? And so, um, you know, for for Freud, that notion of the unconscious was especially that, you know, what he called the the uh, the it in in the German. It would be like the it. It was like this, and translated as the id. These unconscious energies that are very instinctual related to sexuality, related to uh, aggression, related to kind of our life energy and also uh, the, the pull of, what, uh, of, of death energies. And he saw this as these, as completely unconscious and they don't change and they're there from infancy to adulthood and uh, they're 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 not in relationship to reason, logic, or reality. They're just happening. There's just, just these these energies that are occurring. And others like uh, Carl Jung talked about the shadow, right? That I mean, he kind of expanded that notion, but really brought in these all these areas of our experience. Uh, he talked about it as the, the the shadow is the part of our being that we don't like, that we want to sort of suppress. And so that, that would point to one of the ways we see the, uh, 
psychological conditioning is we look out for the parts of ourselves we don't like. We see where we're self-judgmental. Oh, I don't like my, I don't like my aggression or my meanness or, you know, all sorts of, you know, for young and others, all sorts of things can be in the shadow. Uh, it could be um, one's anger. It could be one's sexuality. It could be one's fear. It could be one's relationship to death, right? It could be one's habits, one's addictive tendencies. All these different uh, areas uh, can be identified as places that we may not be aware. You know, we could add to that places where there there is wound, there are wounds, where there is develop, there are developmental wounds, and suddenly we have quite a map of potential areas where we might be stuck or not be not be seeing clearly. Um, and for 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 young and other people who use the sense of the shadow, it was very important to actually connect with those the shadow energies. And he talked about having negotiations with the shadow. <laughs> and because he thought that actually to come to wholeness, you have to deal with all the shadow stuff or else something is missing and one is driven by that which one doesn't know. And you know, he also said that when we don't know something in ourself, we tend to project it onto others. You know, I don't like the anger in myself and I'm really critical of angry people. Right? That which we don't know on ourselves, he said, we tend to project outward onto others where we encounter it as demonic. Yeah. And that can explain a fair amount of behavior, you know, that which we don't see in ourselves. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go too much to the political realm, but it's understanding the shadow is a very good concept to understand what's going on, both the individual shadow and the collective shadow, because Jung and others also talk about the collective shadow. There are things we don't want to deal with, we don't want to look at. You know, A lot of it, you know, again, could be historical. We don't want to look in this country at the uh, history of the uh, genocide of Native Americans or the slavery and so forth. We, or we don't want to look at it much, right? And so that goes into what we call collective shadow or gender issues could be said to be a large part of collective shadow issues. So there are all this, so you can see how these areas point to areas we might uh, work with as part of our awakening, right? That if we, if we don't, if we have a spiritual bypassing and say, as I, I thought initially, I thought initially I could just meditate and that would do it. That was like 40 years ago. <laughs> and uh, I learned pretty quickly that there were the stuff. I mean, it's basically, for myself, it's like one, one explores the shadow in various contexts. Sometimes it would, they come up in, at work or in relationships, right? Uh, um, and sometimes they, you know, come up in meditation. So I would, you know, some of my early retreats, I remember one of my early retreats, uh, I just saw how strong self-image is and, you know, sort of like a, a perfectionist self-image, which is probably, if I do a show, ask for a show of hands, how many of you have perfectionist tendencies? <laughs> okay. that, will, that will go into the shadow. <laughs> and so for me, a lot of this surfaced, you know, with pretty early in my uh, practice, especially on retreats just where I could notice like my uh, strong self-image and it particularly occurred when I was suffering, <coughs> when I was not really, you know, and for me it was, it was uh, on my early retreats really wanting to get to these deep, deep spiritual levels or high spiritual levels, whatever we call it. And um, I remember one retreat, I actually, I was trying to uh, like transcend and actually had some, you know, deep, intense experiences or high experiences. It's interesting we use both deep and high, but anyway, that's... Um, and uh, then I uh, developed a cold. I couldn't concentrate at all. I sat there sniffling 
and unable to concentrate and very self-conscious of all of what was going on with my sounds emanating from me, which I thought would totally show that I was a bad meditator. I mean, it's not rational, right? But uh, most people probably would have some compassion, but that's not where my mind was going. It was that this was really showing other people would think I'm not good, bad, not a good meditator. And it had, it was, uh, it was actually scary. It was very kind of almost like uh, destabilizing of my uh, psyche for a period of time, right? And could really see uh, how that, that occurs. And so we have, you know, we have all these areas in our, that are in our shadow, self-image, uh, death is often there, not wanting to relate to the reality of death, trauma, various kinds of developmental wounds, anger, shame, guilt, uh, sexuality, you know, a lot, some, you know, for, uh, you know, for a lot of men, it may be uh, the gender conditioning, the feminine isn't there much, right? And, and so forth. And uh, could be our own expressivity, our own creativity. It's going to be different for different people. And, um, you know, it could be uh, limiting beliefs. One of the ways I've looked at this is looking at limiting beliefs that I'm not okay. That's a very pervasive unconscious belief. I'm not okay. Something's wrong with me. People won't love me if I'm really myself. And these are extremely pervasive. You know, I've looked with other people in groups for a lot of years at these in the context of working with the judgmental mind, right? So that's, that's sort of the map of uh, what we might call the shadow. And I wanted to also just link this to the life of the Buddha. Because we could say that the start of the Buddha's search came when he looked at his own shadow. Of course, he didn't use this language and a lot of this language is not so explicit, but I think it's helpful to see that the Buddha lived in a very protected place and had a really, really big, we would say, a big shadow. I've heard some people say, big shadow, big awakening. <laughs> right? And so uh, the, the Buddha was protected. His parents had received a prophecy that he would either be a uh, great sage or he would be a great ruler. And they preferred the second very strongly, so much that they had also received as part of the prophecy, whenever your son sees a sick man, an old man, a dead body, or a yogi, your son will want to leave the palace and become a wandering yogi himself. That was that prophecy. And so they created a life for him where there was nothing unpleasant. There was no sign of pain or, unsuffer- or suffering. There was no sign of death. There was no sign of anyone old. And uh, this, these were the Buddha's shadow materials. He was growing up like that without any sense of this. And it's, it's all, they're, they're parallels with maybe some of our upbringing that in many ways we, you know, especially if we're in a privileged place in society, we don't see many of the harsher aspects of life, right? We, you know, we may not, you know, these days some of it's inescapable, you know, with uh, homeless people and so forth. But uh, there, were, there was a, an interesting book that was written quite a while ago uh, by uh, a sociologist named Philip Slater who wrote a book called The Pursuit of Loneliness. And he talked about what he called the toilet assumption, which basically is that uh, if we don't see it, it doesn't exist, especially if we can, as it were, flush it down the toilet. And he was referring to how we can keep poor people in certain areas of town, uh, not look at the mentally ill, you know, keep them away, keep all sorts of negative signs away. So that, and if we, you know, and we could say that about environmental issues as well. If we don't see them, they don't exist, right? And, 
Slater, S-L-A-T-E-R, Philip Slater. It was quite a long time ago, but it, was, I, it really stayed with me. I remembered it preparing for this talk. I hadn't thought about it like for 30 or 40 years. I, I read it in school, you know, and, uh, but uh, very interesting. It really stayed with me, the toilet assumption. I even remember that, you know, is that, <laughs> right, that, uh, let me see if I can find a, a quote about that. Anyway, no, maybe not. Um, but this was the life of the Buddha. And then he had an intuition somehow and on successive nights. And this is one of the ways we encounter the shadow. The Buddha on successive nights went outside the realm of the palace. So one of the ways that we encounter the shadow is to go outside of our ordinary habits, outside of our ordinary patterns, uh, maybe tra- even traveling, going to places. And that Buddha did this. He went outside. This is all a metaphor. He went outside of the palace on the successive nights he met an old man and he had never seen an old man he asked the old man what human form is this so miserable and so shocking to behold the like of which I have never seen before the person the person who took him out said this man is what is called old (laughs) and the Buddha or the Buddha to be said is this one the only one of the sort? <laughs> or is this something universal, applying to all alike? And his, you know, his attendant said, this is the common lot of all who live. And the Buddha was roy- royally freaked out. <laughs> yeah. and, on, and then on other nights, he came to see a person who was ill, had very similar... Um, Shock came to see a corpse, had never seen this before, so and then saw a wandering yogi. You know, again, we could say that this was uh, uh, really these were aspects of, of the shadow. And so, how do, we, how do we explore this if we want to explore our own psychological material or the shadow? And some of us may, how many of us have in various ways explored our psychological material? You know, whether through meditation or psychotherapy or sometimes through close relationships. And it's an interesting question. How do we explore the unconscious? You know, how do we know what we don't know? It's one way to ask it. You know, of course, you know, we, we actually, the answer is going to be we look for hints of the shadow, right? But how do we know what we don't know? And there's, there's a way that if we look carefully and even in our, in our lives, the shadow will sort of open up in certain ways. And one, you know, we can, uh, we can look at it in a, in a variety of ways. And I think the tools that we have developed here are very, very helpful tools for our meditative exploration, for our, our mindful exploration, this, that we want to develop Mindfulness. We want to be able to track what's happening. We want to be able to investigate, to look carefully. You know, if shadow material comes up, we want to be able to look at it carefully. We want to have the heart practices, compassion especially, um, when we go into difficult materials. Because essentially, this is really saying that uh, places where we get stuck or have difficulty or even pain or wounds are places we need to go into in order to grow and learn, right? It's a message we often don't want to hear. And so I think we, ought, we especially need to hold everything with compassion. And I think especially of the uh, very helpful three-step self-compassion practice that Kristen Neff developed, which one can do on the spot. Very, very simple, very helpful. Number one, when you're going through a hard time, just say, this is hard, this is difficult. Or, you know, like Sylvia might say, you're going through a hard time, aren't you, sweetheart? Yes? You don't want it, do you? No? Yeah, and then that's the first step. Second is recognizing that it's um, part of what it means to be human. So we might say the common human situation, right? And And reflect on that. That's number two. Number three, wishing a kind word for oneself. You know, 
We might say, this is hard. This is part of what it means to be human, which gives a framing. And then thirdly, saying to oneself something like, maybe as gentle with yourself in this time as possible or something, could be anything, right? That's a very helpful practice. So to hold, when we go into this, we hold, can hold it with compassion. And in going into shadow material or unconscious material, a teacher or a guide could be a therapist, could be, are extremely helpful. I know it's been really <laughs> crucial for me to go into that territory, to have help even to, to, lo- to look in particular ways. And so what do we want to notice, let's say, in our, with our mindfulness, both in our meditation and in, our, in the flow of our daily lives? If we want to go into this territory, a really good uh, starting point uh, for looking into this territory is just to notice wherever there's reactivity. Notice when the mind gets reactive, when it doesn't like something and gets kind of reactive about it or really grabs hold of something. There's typically going to be shadow material there. And one can actually bring the mindfulness to the reactivity. You know, when you notice reactivity with a, a partner or at work or just with anything, uh, bring awareness to it, bring mindfulness to it. It's a good way to see some of one's own stuff. And of course, that's a big part of practice that probably many or most of us, or maybe all of us, have been exploring for some time. But really making an into having intention to look at reactivity is a crucial way to practice. Uh, we can look for certain content areas I mentioned before. Look for self-image. Look for where we want to present ourselves in a certain way. That's going to be, look for what we, where we judge ourselves, where we don't like something. Looking at the judgmental mind is a tremendous way to clean up a lot of stuff. I, I found that both in myself and in working with others. That, it, that if you just look at where you're judgmental of others and where you're judgmental of yourself, you will find, we will find uh, many of the areas where some kind of growth or learning is calling. Right? And so it's really to look at that and be able to be mindful, study those places, not just to, so we notice them and then we can actually, if they stay for a while, see what it feels like in the body and the heart. You know, as we look more deeply at the judgmental mind or at any of these, we can start to see almost what, what in, for many psychologists are called limiting beliefs, almost like unconscious models that run us, like I'm not okay or something's wrong with me. They're typically negative. They could be positive also. Something is off with me or this part of me is not okay, right? These parts are okay and this part is not okay, you know? My anger is not okay, or my fear is not okay, or my uh, you know aggression is not okay. So we want to look to uh, the judgmental minds. We want to notice where challenges maybe come up in at work, in relationships. Where 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 do challenges come up? They can often point to areas to explore. There's a, a Tibetan. Uh, teaching slogan that I love a lot, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Another way of saying it is take life as the path and let, let the difficulties that come up in life be signs to look more deeply. And this, this is all pointing to practices we might do in the next week. Really study reactivity. And may, or maybe, again, I think we're all at you know, different places with this. Um, there are also ways that in that in a meditative context or could also be a psychological context therapy and a lot of therapists use meditation that we sort of develop stability of mind and then actually consciously go into looking at certain territory that we know is uh, difficult for us. This is something I, I've done a lot. You know, um, one teacher I had had the thought that uh, there's something about my ang- you know that I needed to relate more to my anger. 
you know, that I think, I mean, as I think as we've sometimes talked about uh, here, my own conditioning was to be conflict avoidant, which is probably the conditioning of two-thirds or more of us, to be conflict avoidant and not to want to express anger because it, it's going to get into conflict. and That's messy, right? And so one teacher had me deliberately go into my own anger. It also occurred during retreat spontaneously. I think I sometimes tell the story, and it's in my book, about being angry for 10 days in a row about 16 hours a day. <laughs> the shadow has appeared. <laughs> right? And it was incredibly illuminating. I, was, I love that that happened. Right? And so um, we can sometimes deliberately go. I, I was encouraged to go into the woods and bang on trees with sticks and access my anger, right? And kind of like a stereotypical therapist suggestion, right? <laughs> right, but uh, it was, I did that for 10 days in a row, a few times a day. It was very, very helpful, right? So we can sometimes deliberately, with awareness, go into a certain territory. And of course, that would be done by a lot of psychologists. We can look into where we have fixed views. Where do I have really tight views? including about things I may even be right on. Right? Uh, you know, being right uh, isn't all it's cracked up to be. Right? I think of the cartoon where it shows an epitaph on a grave. It said, he had the right of way. <laughs> right? So we can, look, we can look into where we think we're right but where we get tight about it, right? So these are all um, areas to explore that kind of open us up. Um, and of course, there are other areas that people have used over the years to look into unconscious material, shadow material. Dreams are incredible. I haven't, I think I said once we would look into dreams here. How many would like to have some intention to dreams? It's been a, a favorite topic of mine for a really long time. You know, and I, I actually do dream practice some when I do retreats, you know, uh, trying to develop lucid dreams and so forth. Anyway, but we can look at the shadow in dreams. We can look at it in, uh, sometimes we can explore it through creativity, art, uh, music, uh, theater. Uh, we can explore how the shadow and unconscious material develops in the body. A lot of uh, there are a lot of wonderful body-based ways to approach all of this. So maybe next time I'll go into a little more depth on how to do that exploration. But maybe let me finish by uh, saying, um, giving some suggestions for practice. Uh, I think notice places where there's reactivity, where there's a sense of stuckness. And you can even deliberately go into that territory at times, but mostly just pay attention to it. Again, everyone's going to be at a different level of looking at this. And probably a lot of us have looked with, you know, for a long time at, at this material. Um, another way is just uh, having a practice of reflecting at the end of the day. Were there ways that I acted in ways that were unskillful, was I reactive? What ways that might that I might want to point to? Can take an inventory at the end of the day. So let me finish. This is a this is a wonderful book. I would recommend bringing your shadow out of the dark, breaking free from the hidden forces that drive you by Robert Augustus Masters, who actually was uh, quite a long time ago, about twenty plus years ago, was a student of mine when I, I spent some time teaching at a graduate school, he did his dissertation on anger, which was really cool. I helped him write the dissertation a little bit. Anyway, it was really, but it was, it was a, anyway, this is a wonderful book on the shadow. And this is just the end of, <clears throat> this is the, the uh, like a poem at the end of the book. It's called Darkness Unveiled. Turn, turn, toward what you're housing in the dark. Meet it 
uncover it until you realize that what you're seeing is none other than you in and darkened disguise. No longer blinded by light, you start unwrapping the night, touching a knowing too deep to be spoken, a recognition too central to be broken, until even the darkest day lights your way. So thank you for your your kind attention. And again, maybe just take a moment, a quiet moment. How many would like to keep on exploring this in the next week? Okay. And just take a moment to set an intention to do that and just ask yourself, how what are the ways that I can explore this territory? Good. So again, thanks for your kind attention. We have we have some time for any <clears throat> further questions or any reflections. Okay. We'll wait for the mic. Okay. Okay, and then second in the back. Yeah. Thank you so so much for your thoughtful integration and fabulous. Um, questions. A little background. I was a psychology professor shortly before I became a meditator Mm. some 40 years ago. And I'm really appreciating what you're saying. Mm. And I'm very sad to say that I question your premise. Mm. I was brought up um, with a humanistic background Mm -hmm. of the goodness of all people. Mm -hmm. And the last 40 years has been kind of disappointing to Mm. me as I have watched the history unfold. 